This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. My guest today spends a lot of time thinking about the worst crises that could befall America, whether it's a global pandemic, a hack of the electrical grid, a zombie apocalypse, or a rampaging Bigfoot, as in his latest book, Devolution, a first-hand account of the Rainier Sasquatch Massacre. If there's a consistent moral to the books of Max Brooks, as well as his graphic novels and even his work with groups like the Modern Warfare Institute at West Point, it's that people in the 21st century are getting soft and exchanging resilience and know-how for technological convenience a trade-off that may not serve us very well when we're put to the test in a true emergency such as the one we're in right now with COVID-19. And today, Max Brooks returns to the show to discuss what a fictional Sasquatch massacre can teach us about the perils of eco-utopianism, those people who still refuse to wear a mask in public, and what happens when man encroaches on nature. He talks about his childhood fascination with the legend of Bigfoot, his hatred for the 1987 movie Harry and the Hendersons, and how his research into great apes informed his take on how Sasquatches might behave if they were threatened. He also recalls his brief stint as a writer on Saturday Night Live, how his mother, Anne Bancroft, inspired his love of science and research, and how his dad, Mel Brooks, and the late Carl Reiner got each other through quarantine. Coming up with Max Brooks in just a moment. Max Brooks is the author of World War Z, The Zombie Survival Guide, and Minecraft, The Island. His graphic novels include G.I. Joe, Hearts and Minds, The Extinction Parade, Germ Warfare, A Graphic History, and The Harlem Hellfighters. He holds fellowships at the Atlantic Council's Brent Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security and the Modern War Institute at West Point. And now he's battling Bigfoot, volcanoes, and modern man's ineptitude in his new novel, Devolution a first-hand account of the Rainier Sasquatch Massacre. Max Brooks, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, Max, before we get to the book, I have to ask how your dad, Mel Brooks, is doing. I know he lost Carl Reiner, his best friend in the world, last week. How's he holding up? <clears throat> I think he's holding up as as best he can when you lose a friend of 70 years. Wow. Yeah, their friendship was old enough to collect Social Security. (laughs) That is incredible. Now, did did you get to know Carl pretty well yourself? Oh, very well. He was he was uh, my greatest cheerleader. uh, Every time every time I did anything, he was so proud of me and he would he'd call and he'd quell, as the Jews say, and he he promote it and tweet about it. And he was, he was like a second proud father. <laughs> That's so sweet. He was such a great guy. It's yeah. amazing that they were friends for 70 years. And I, I know they used to have dinner every night. I've had Carl on a few times and every time I would tell him you and Mel should write a book about friendship. And uh, they never got around to it, I guess, but, no, they, but people could learn some things from them. I think. They really, they really could, you know, even, even now with COVID, uh, some, you know, they were, they were sort of in a COVID pod where mm-hmm. they had, you know, they had, they had the people close to them who were tested and safe. Yeah. 
So they were still able to see each other um, in a safe way because they were insulated from the rest of the world. So in a way, it was kind of two of them against the world. And so now it's now that my dad has really had to retreat. So, so, you know, we're we're circling the wagons. My wife and my son and I were getting ourselves tested and isolating ourselves so then we can see him. We can have him over to our house and we can actually go in his house because up until this point, we've been waving through glass. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I remember you did that amazing homemade PSA with you and your dad, where you were social distancing behind like a plate glass window or something. So that wasn't just for laughs. That's really how you two visited during the pandemic. No. No. Yeah. That. That was. That's all real. Uh, <laughs> you know, we we have been going over to his house like once a week, uh, but we have not been in the house. And wow. he he comes to the kitchen door and he opens the door and you know we talk through the screen. Yeah. And we're seven, eight feet away. Okay. So you finally got but, to the point where you can open the door now. <laughs> yeah, but but he's still he's still got the screen so we can hear him. But even when he does yeah. that, we have to move farther away. So now you're going to get tested and you'll actually be able to come in the house or hang out or he can come in your house? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the problem is when you get tested, you can then walk right out and get reinfected. So it's... Exactly. You have to get tested and then you have to be very, very isolated. Yeah. So that's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to make sure that yeah. uh, from the time we get tested, there's no going out. It's, yeah. If we want to see him, you know, it's us and him. That's good. Does he still go to the track? I remember I used to always see him at Santa Anita. He was a big race fan. I mean, I guess he does oh. it now with the pandemic. but <laughs> No, th- this pandemic has cut off uh, three of his... Uh, three of his lifelines yeah. and one of them was the track and the other one was going to the office where mm-hmm. you know people could come in he could tell stories and it would be fun and then uh, the last one was his lunch he had a friday lunch with with his gang oh really and yeah all that went away with COVID. i didn't realize that who was in his gang uh there were guys like richard donner you know who did goonies <laughs> and superman yeah. and, um a couple of his other friends, I think Jake Hanter was one of them. Uh, but yeah, that Friday lunch was was a big deal for him. You right. know, the moment we locked down, uh, that all that all disappeared. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do. You know, I, yeah. meant to, I meant to ask you last time, your mom was, of course, Anne Bancroft, and your dad was Mel. What characteristics did you get from your dad, and what did you get from your mom? That's really, it's interesting. You know, um, you know, from my mom was all about curiosity and mm. and intellectual uh, pursuits because my mother was a closet scientist really yeah yeah i mean nobody wanted that from her you know hollywood they they want they want one thing from you mm-hmm. you know they wanted mrs robinson or something like that right <laughs> no, nobody gave a shit that her favorite book was the microbe hunters <laughs> really no kidding she's like hedy lamar <laughs> yeah she really was so she taught me everything about science about technology she taught me about uh the creative pursuit, not just outside of show business, you know, mm-hmm. the idea to be an inventor, to be a scientist, a discoverer. Um, I learned everything from her. She wow. saved my life. You huh. know, I'm so dyslexic too. That's right. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Didn't she do something where she had your school books recorded on audio yeah. before there were audio books probably? <laughs> oh, she, you know, she was amazing. I don't know where she got this. Uh, I think because her father, her father had been a math genius had won a gold watch in a math competition. <laughs> uh, but then his his parents, his immigrant Italian parents, took him out of school at 13. That was a big story in our family, yeah. where, where the math teacher had actually come to their house and had uh. begged and said, listen, your son 
son's a genius. Your son can can go to college, which back then, you know, oh my God, please, please let him finish his education. And, you know, they said, oh, no, 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 no. They said, no, he, he got to work. He's a 13. He's a man now. He's got to go. And the, the make, the carry, the bill. So he was never allowed to be, to complete his intellectual pursuits. Wow. So and education my, was very big in your family, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because my grandfather had never had his chance. So therefore the chance was the rest of us must. Was there ever a point in your life when you thought about following your dad or your mom into a career as an actor or a funny guy? You know, it's funny. I never, uh, I, I, the world wanted me to, you know, my mother, my mother wanted me to, my mother wanted me to be an, my mother said, you know, you're great. You're talented. You could really be something. And she really tried to push me to get an agent and headshots and auditions. And I just loathed it. Really? Uh, because I had the soul of a writer and I always mm-hmm. had. And so th- when you're an actor, it's very passive. Mm-hmm. You know, here's what we want you. Here are the words we want you to read. Right. And here's what we want you to wear. And here's how we want you to look. And there's a director. and He's going to direct you and tell you what to do. And some people, you know, they're great at that. And then they bring their own creativity to it. You know, I'm sure mm-hmm. Daniel Day-Lewis, what he brings to a role is nothing like the writer imagined. Right. Aside from his own shoes. <laughs> yes, exactly. But there is there's a, that type of creativity. I mean, my wife's a playwright. And when the actors come in, they bring, a good actor can bring their own creativity to it. But mm-hmm. that's not me. That's not who I am. It's not where I live. And it was a really tough time to say to my mom, you know, listen, I, I this is not who I am. Yeah. I don't want it. I don't think I knew this before, but I, I recently learned that I guess you had a brief stint as a writer on Saturday Night Live. What, what era yeah. was, in SNL's history was that? We were the class of 9-11. Oh, wow. That's yeah, a tough I got one. The job. <laughs> yeah, I got the job, me and Seth Meyers and a bunch of uh, the rest of us, we all got on at the same time. And then 9-11 happened. Hmm. And that was a crazy time because I got to watch uh, the rise of Jon Stewart because of us. Oh, interesting. Yeah, we blew it. And, and I'll be very honest about that. Yeah. was <clears throat> the country shifted overnight and we didn't. We did not adapt. Mm-hmm. Uh, we right. stuck with this very sort of safe 1990s pop culture formula and the country moved on. They were hungry to process what was happening. And because we weren't there for them and because Bill Maher had been taken off the air, there was this, this ingenue, this guy, John Stewart, who took over this little fledgling show called The Daily Show. And woof, he filled the void magnificently. And, and, you know, I always love to ask SNL cast members about their initial one-on-one with Lauren Michaels, because I never hear a story and think, okay, now I understand Lauren Michaels. What makes him tick? I found his rosebud. <laughs> Instead, yeah. they only reinforce the enigma. <laughs> I wonder when you were a writer, when you first joined there, did you also have to do the Lauren Michaels sit down? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And he's, and you know, I will always be indebted to him because he never once uh, led me down some sort of primrose path. He was very clear and he was very honest. And he said, you know, this show has to be your life and it's a frustrating place to work. And he showed me the wall and he said, see see these, the wall is of the sketches that are going to go on. And he said, you see these six sketches, this half dozen sketches that are actually going to be on television. We start with 40 of them. We start writing 40, about 40 sketches a week, maybe more, and we whittle down to these. 
And a lot of this has to do with what's in the queue and what, what the host is bringing. And so uh, you're going to be very frustrated here and you have to really want this. And I did, and I wanted, I wanted it, but I did not fit in and they fired me rightfully. So I would have fired me because I'm not a writer's room writer. I'm not a kibitzer like my dad. Oh, okay. You know, I think on some level they thought they were getting Mel Brooks Jr. The, the famous writer's (laughs) room from your show of shows with Mel and Carl and all those guys. Yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. And and I think on some level that's what they thought they were getting and they Mm -hmm. didn't. They got Max Brooks and they didn't want Max Brooks. And I, I don't blame them for that, you know, because they are who they are. I am who I am. Mm-hmm. And if it's not the right fit, it's not the right fit. And like I said, Lauren was honest with me from day one. So uh, no harm, no foul. Mm-hmm. Well, you've certainly made a good career out of writing in solitude with your novels yeah. and your graphic novels. And I want to talk about this new book, Devolution. In the past, you've written about zombies, and now in Devolution, you have humans battling Sasquatches or or Sasquatch. What what is the plural of Sasquatch? Actually, I don't know. know, I'm still. This is the crazy part. Sasquatch. You know what? I don't like. You know, with my books, that I do years of research. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, I go, I go crazy. Tom Clancy, Herman Woke. Like, I go deep. Yeah. I go to. I I I go to school. I go to college for like four years before I start writing. (laughs) And yet with all the research I did on this, I still don't know what is the plural. Oh, really? Is it, is <laughs> no it Big Feet? Is it Sasquatches? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, let me tell you, we'll get into this in a minute of how deep I went into the research. And yeah. yet this nut, I could not crack. <laughs> well, let, let's get into that. What kind of research did you do? What did you want to know before you started writing this book? Because <clears> it's not just the Sasquatch research. There's volcanoes and all kinds of things. Yeah. You know, ironically, uh, my process was summed up by Nathan Fillion Mm -hmm. because he wrote on Twitter because we cast him in the audiobook, And he said, you know, Max starts with a very simple process. What if this was real? And he's right. That's all. I I take something that scares me probably from my childhood Mm -hmm. or something that fascinates me like Minecraft. And I go, "Okay, what if this was real? And that singular question is my compass needle for what I have to research. So, for example, the, the book begins with our eco-community nestled in the Cascade Mountains, Greenloop. And it's not an off-the-grid hippie commune. This is is the new Levittown. This is the new model for how technology can allow you to live anywhere you want with the comforts of the Upper West Side of Manhattan. (laughs) Okay, so we start with that question. How do we do it? So I was very lucky to know uh, a guy who got into Microsoft back in the 90s. He knows tech. So he walked me through how you could wire in a community and have them be able to telecommute to work, how do drone deliveries work, how do electric cars work, how does biogas work? The idea that if you flush your poo, it goes into a digester, digester and it comes out as methane that you can cook with. So that's all real. Everything in Green Loop is real and it's under one roof. So that's one question. How does the tech work? Then the eruption of Mount Rainier cuts them off. Well, what does a Mount Rainier eruption really look like? So I had to talk to a lot of volcanologists mm-hmm. and that turned me around because sometimes in my research for books, I start with a premise and I'm going in a direction and then the experts come in and go, no, 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 turn around. Because <laughs> I thought it was going to be like another Mount St. Helens, you know, mm-hmm. sort of a big blast of, of ash in the sky day into night. That's not Rainier. 
the danger of Rainier is something called the Lahars. You've got all this snow and ice up on the top and it will liquefy within moments and it will all come rushing down. So instead of like hot lava, you will have boiling mud. And that really happened at a place called Armero in Colombia in the 1980s. And the USGS actually has a map of where the Lahars are going to go. And that map was up on my wall and that determined everything, where I put Green Loop, uh, how they'd be cut off, what would happen to Seattle and Tacoma? It's not pretty. I'll tell you that. If this thing, if and when this thing really goes, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll return with more when we come back in just a moment. Hey folks, technology is constantly changing. And if you have a business like I do, you know all too well that you either change with it or you die. It used to be that a company didn't exist unless it was in the phone book, and then a company didn't exist if it wasn't on the internet. But nowadays, people are spending less time on their computers and more time on their mobile devices, which means it's absolutely essential to have an attractive and easy-to-use mobile app. If you're looking for a product design and development company to help you build your next app, Mutual Mobile is the company for you. Mutual Mobile has designed and built over 600 mobile and web apps powering many Fortune 500 companies and high-growth startups around the world today. Founded over 10 years ago, Mutual Mobile has partnered with Under Armour, Clorox, Alamo Drafthouse, KitchenAid, and more. This company is the best-kept secret of web design and development. Well, at least until now. Now, we all know about the pain of hiring a freelancer or a new employee only to find out months later that it's not a fit, but Mutual Mobile has a refined process, so they get it done right the first time. And if you're anything like me, that's precisely what you need. Because what do I know about creating a mobile app or what customers are looking for in that sort of thing? I'm no tech whiz. And who wants to spend all the time and money to build their own team? That's not efficient. But that's exactly why Mutual Mobile is such a lifesaver. Spanning business-to-business, consumer, and industry segments, their teams champion custom digital product management, user experience best practices, visual and interactive design, and integrated technical operational development capabilities. Mutual Mobile's teams work alongside their partners from strategy building to product delivery to create impactful and scalable mobile experiences. If you have design or development needs, schedule a free 30-minute consultation with Mutual Mobile at mutualmobile.link slash kick to get started. That's mutualmobile.link slash kick. Hey folks, I am so excited to talk to you about my new sponsor. I've been recommending chili products to friends for years now. They literally changed my life and now I am a true believer. Did you know that one of the most effective ways to get better sleep is through temperature regulation? Chili makes both the Chili Pad and Uller, two really cool gadgets that fit over the top of your mattress and use water to control the temperature of your bed. Since water is more thermally efficient than air, Chili sleep systems can help lower your internal temperature to trigger deep, relaxing sleep. The Uller is controlled through an app on your phone with smart scheduling, a warm-awake feature, and a UV light to auto-clean, while the Chili Pad is simply controlled using a remote. Ever since I started using my Chili Sleep System, I've noticed I fall asleep faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling fully rested. 
Whether you like to sleep a little warmer or cooler, you can customize the temperature for you and your side of the bed. Chili products offer a temperature range between 55 and 115 degrees Fahrenheit to suit every sleeper. I used to get horrible sleep. I'd wake up several times a night, hot, sweaty, and frustrated, tossing the comforter off. But then my wife got me what is to this day still the very best birthday gift that I've ever received, a chili pad. And I've slept like a baby ever since because it keeps me cool all through the night. It's not uneven like air conditioning. It cools me right in my immediate space where I sleep. And now my sheets actually hold the cool in rather than making me hot at night. Now, if you, on the other hand, like to sleep warmer, Chili has you covered there too. But for me, there's just nothing like getting nice and cozy when it's chilly. Sometimes I even take my chili pad all the way down to 55 degrees, and I love it. Chili really did change my life for the better, and it'll do the same for you. And right now, Chili is offering my audience a really great deal. When you go to chilitechnology.com kick, you can get $150 off any sleep system with code KICK. That's C-H-I-L-I technology.com slash KICK with code KICK for $150 off any sleep system. One more time, it's chilitechnology.com slash KICK and offer code KICK. Folks, you've heard me talk before about how much I love my chili pad. I'm so happy that they decided to advertise on the show because I have been sleeping cool with their patented chili pad for a couple of years now, and it has dramatically improved my sleep. One of the most effective ways to get better sleep is through temperature regulation. Chili makes both the chili pad and the Uller, two really cool gadgets that fit over the top of your mattress and use water to control the temperature of your bed. Since water is more thermally efficient than air, chilly sleep systems can help lower your internal temperature to trigger deep, relaxing sleep. The Uller is controlled through an app on your phone with smart scheduling, a warm-awake feature, and a UV light to auto-clean, while the chili pad is simply controlled using a remote. Ever since I started using my chili sleep system, I've noticed I fall asleep faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling fully rested. Whether you like to sleep a little warmer or cooler, you can customize the temperature for you and your side of the bed. Chili products offer a temperature range between 55 and 115 degrees Fahrenheit to suit every sleeper. Me, I love to sleep nice and cool. Sometimes I even take my chili pad all the way down to 55 degrees, and I love it. Before I got a chili pad, I used to wake up a few times every night and throw off the comforter because I was hot and had night sweats, and it was just incredibly uncomfortable and frustrating. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Well, that's what I have air conditioning for. But AC isn't always consistent, and sometimes the temperature in front of the vent is different from the rest of the room. But Chili Pad keeps it at the exact temperature I desire consistently and right in my immediate space. Chili changed how I sleep for the better, and it'll do the same for you. And right now, Chili is offering my audience a really great deal. When you go to chilitechnology.com kick, you can get $150 off any sleep system with code kick. That's C-H-I-L-I technology.com slash kick with code kick for $150 off any sleep system. One more time, it's chilitechnology.com slash kick and offer code kick. Warning, high-potency supplements aren't for everyone. But if you're intent on continuous improvement and accomplishing health and wellness goals, 
then you need to meet V-Thrive, the vitamin shop brand. These quality vitamins, supplements, and more are simply clean. No magnesium stearate, stearic acid, or titanium dioxide. Zero artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. Visit vitaminshop.com forward slash podcast or any of the Vitamin Shop stores to level up your health routine and show your body some major love with solutions like Active Flex Plus. Featuring clinically studied ingredients like a Preflex and types 1 and 2 collagen to help fuel healthy joints, tendons, and ligaments and deliver results you can feel. Discover their most advanced formulas, bioactive men's and women's multivitamins, with immune-supporting vitamins C and D plus zinc and everything else to fill in the nutrient gaps. And explore heart-healthy, full-spectrum fish oils made from wild-caught, U.S.-sourced Alaskan pollock. Plus, new for 2020, advanced nootropic formula for cognitive function, energy production, and up to five hours of improved alertness. Find them all and more at vitaminshop.com forward slash podcast. That's vitamin, S-H-O-P-P-E, dot com forward slash podcast. Or visit the Vitamin Shop store near you. And I understand that you based this community of Green Loop on a real, not a commune, but uh, some kind of a eco-utopian community, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, these, the real community is not as high-tech as Green Loop. In fact, mm-hmm. I think the people of Green Loop would look down on these people. Okay. Uh, at, the people that I saw were, uh, I think, a little more self-sufficient and a little closer to, uh, you know, closer to civilization. Mm-hmm. But you just take that a few more steps. Right. And you're, you're there. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, it sort of highlights one of the great paradoxes of environmentalism, which is that the whole ecological movement, it's not really driven by mountain men living in the Alleghenies, living off their wits with nothing but a gun and a dog. It's disproportionately made up of city dwellers like you and me. And I doubt that most of them would have any idea how to survive in the wilderness, how to tell poisonous berries from good berries or how, how to field dress a deer if they had to. Oh, no. I mean, this was this was sort of my my introduction began in college with a friend of mine from Colorado. And he would always talk about how city folk had absolutely no idea how to respect the wilderness, huh. you know, because you're in nature's house and nature has its own rules. And mm-hmm. you're right. A lot of the environmental movement is of urbanites like us who we we bring our own invented sense of what nature should be right. into nature's house. <laughs> and what, one of my inspirations for the book was Timothy Treadwell, the grizzly man. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the guy who decided I'm going to save the bears. And he was this ex-junkie from Venice Beach and he would go up to Colorado. I mean, not Colorado, he'd go up to Alaska and he would he would break the law and I think he would go live in the bear preserve. <laughs> And he would film himself like he thought he was David Attenborough with the bears. And he would name them, you know, like Mr. Chocolate. And it was cute and fun. And then one day he was eaten by a bear. <laughs> and then, of course, because he was eaten by the bear, the bear was classified as a man eater and had to be put down. Mm-hmm. So way to save the bears, asshole. Right. <laughs> well, that's one of the things that I appreciate about your take on the Sasquatch in this book, because so often it's either portrayed as some kind of benevolent nature loving protector of the forest, or it's a horrific monster that's just innately intent on wreaking death and destruction just because it has some kind of evil nature, but you take a totally different approach. It's more of 
what would a real primate do in this situation? It has no concept of morality. Its only thought is its own survival. Yeah, that's exactly right. You nailed it. And that's why a huge chunk of my research was real primatology. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I've been reading about Sasquatch for decades. I've been reading about the works of Jeff Meldrum and John Green and Grover Kranz. But now I had to steep myself in Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey <laughs> and all the real primatologists that study great apes. Yeah. Because you're right. My attitude is it's not good. It's not evil. Those are human concepts. They're animals. And when there's an ecological disaster that removes its food source, these animals have to adapt or die. So they're already omnivorous. They have to then become carnivorous because that's where the food is. And when they come up against Green Loop, here's a pen of sheep. Right. I mean, it makes me think of how people like us live in Los Angeles and we've terraformed the land to our perfect liking. And, you know, we've encroached on wilderness areas. And then suddenly we're shocked when we find a rattlesnake or a mountain lion in our backyard. <laughs> it's like, what did you expect? Oh, oh my God. I love you call it terraforming. That's so genius because that's exactly what it is. One of the books that that jumpstarted this project was called The Beast in the Garden. Okay. And it was a true story, uh, Boulder, Colorado. Mm -hmm. They terraformed the land. They terraformed the semi-arid terrain to become a paradise. And the deer started coming out of the mountains and the mountain lions started following the deer. And I mean, it reads like Jaws. Initially, the locals were like, oh, honey, grab the camera. Look, there's a mountain lion. <laughs> and the wilderness experts, the rangers were like, uh, this is not good, folks. We need to, we, we need to do something. Yeah. And they were like, who are you to mess with nature? And sure enough, the mountain lions lost their fear of humans mm -hmm. and they got bolder and bolder. And eventually a young, strong, fit man went uh, went for a run and he never came back. Wow. And then they found him half eaten by a mountain lion. Well, that's like, uh, what was it? K9, K19 or whatever, the, the mountain lion that was roaming around uh, the Hollywood Hills. Right? Oh, my God. That's he was, the he was a joke. celebrity. <laughs> he was a Hollywood oh celebrity. They're like, oh, look, K-19. Oh, it's so cute. Oh, my God. Well, eventually, for those of you who listen to this podcast and don't know, eventually K-19 realized that it was living above the L.A. Zoo, which in mm. mountain lion terms is the all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then one day the zookeepers went to the koala pen and they found one less koala and a bunch of fur <laughs> and blood everywhere. And that's not K-19's fault. Yeah. That's our fault. Yeah. Have you always had a big interest in Bigfoot lore? I've always been fascinated by it. And by fascinated, I mean scared out of my mind. Because <laughs> when I was a kid, I in the late 70s, early 80s, it was the height of the Bigfoot craze. And all these, you know, pseudo Bigfoot documentaries were coming mm -hmm. out. Right. And I they remember used to, that. Yeah. Remember those? Do you remember there was one called The Mysterious Monsters with Peter Graves? I th and think I do. Check it out. It's on YouTube and try to look at it through the eyes of a six-year-old <laughs> living, living in a post-World War II ranch style home with plate glass walls. Surrounded oh, yeah. by <laughs> so there are, there I am, you know, and I'm watching it and they used to do, remember when they used to do recreations? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like unsolved mysteries and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Now I didn't know that these were dramatizations. Oh really? All I, yeah. All <laughs> I knew as a little kid is, I'm watching TV at night next to a window, watching a woman watch TV at night next to a window. <laughs> wow. And then a giant fist smashes through the window and tries to get her. Oh, yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. yeah. So draw your own conclusions. Yeah. 
Now, I have to ask, then, uh, to what extent were you influenced by the 1987 film Harry and the Hendersons and or the subsequent television series? Oh, God, I despise <laughs> that movie. To it's me, so stupid. that did for Bigfoot what the movie Return of the Living Dead did for zombies. <laughs> you know, when I was breaking into zombies with Zombie Survival Guide, like zombies were about as far off the cultural radar as you could have gotten at that point. Mm -hmm. And most people's touchstone was the movie Return of the Living Dead. They're back from the grave and ready to party. <laughs> yeah, because this was before, you know, The Walking Dead and on the whole zombie craze, I guess, wasn't it? I mean, World War II yeah, came before it, that. I, I think Walking Dead, the comic book came out like a few months after Zombie Survival Guide. But even oh, then, really? Walking Dead yeah. was, uh, was in obscurity until Frank Darabont turned mm -hmm. it into a TV show. Then it right. went mainstream. Where do you fall on Bigfoot? Uh, are you a Bigfoot believer? Are you a skeptic? Somewhere in between? In the course of my research, I have discovered that w that there is no evidence yet. And I'm, I'm one of, you know, weirdo, science guy. <laughs> Show me some actual evidence and I'll believe. But I have discovered that the ecosystem of the Pacific Northwest is a perfect place for uh a family of great apes, a species of great apes to live. Really? There's no scientific okay. reason huh. that great apes could not live in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. And yet there's we enough... haven't seen them. <laughs> no, no, but there is enough land. There's enough space yeah. uh, for cover and concealment. And there's enough food mm -hmm. to keep these giant bodies going. Because okay. uh, the Pacific Northwest is very big. And, you know, what? what I postulate in the book was had the, dis had the discovery of the footprints happened, say, in the 40s and the 50s, mm -hmm. when we all had shared beliefs, maybe the scientific community would have investigated without any stigma. Because I think what happened was in the 60s and 70s, after Vietnam and uh, the counterculture, I think academia mm -hmm. wasn't going anywhere near that. Mm -hmm. And it fell to amateurs. Yeah, where did the famous film, or where did that fall in the timeline? Was that the 60s oh or 70s or 80s? Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. And uh, this is, I think it's in like in the 70s or, or maybe I think it's the late 60s. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's been debunked all, now, right? Oh, God. Well, I mean, all you have to do is look at the circumstances around it. Okay. Uh, that Roger Patterson, I think he wanted to make a Bigfoot movie. <laughs> and, he had, or, and I think he admitted like, yes, we were going to make a Bigfoot movie. And uh, we had already, uh, we already hired the costume makers and we were all ready and I was taking my camera up to where we were going to shoot the Bigfoot movie and there was a real Bigfoot. <laughs> what a coincidence. What wow. What a coincidence. <laughs> That's funny. I never heard that. Yeah. Uh, I mean it would literally be like if I said, well, I'm going to I'm going to make a UFO documentary. And I've got the UFO the costumes ready and the prop department has already made the anal probe. So I went out to the <laughs> desert coincidentally there was a bright light and i woke up the next morning with my anus hurt <laughs> now like world war z you take kind of an anthropological or a documentarian approach to the story and devolution with a diary and first-hand accounts and whatnot what do you like about the process of looking back at a fictional historic event and trying to piece together what happened kind of that forensic horror yeah, style uh, you know for me the story itself has to dictate the format mm -hmm. So like with World War Z, I wanted to tell a global zombie story, which, which I had always wanted to read and I wanted to have done it. But I thought, how the hell am I going to do that? 
And I had Studs Terkel's The Good War and Oral History of World War II as my template. So I thought, perfect. Uh, with this, I wanted to do sort of the lost colony of Roanoke. What happened? Yeah. And a journal is great because while it tells you the story beat by beat, it leaves it open-ended. Because if I were doing a straight-up oral history and if I was interviewing the survivors of Greenloop, you knew who lived and who died. So as a journal, it leaves an open-ended ending where you say, my God, what is, is she still alive? Is she out there? What, what happened? Because that's so much fun. I love the stories of lost civilizations and communities like Roanoke that just vanished. And you know, again, the, the sort of forensic mystery of it, trying to piece together what might have happened. I agree. That stuff is fascinating. I mean, I, I want to look at sort of what happened to Easter Island and what happened yeah. to these Native American cities that we had in the, in the, the Southwest. These, these were thriving metropolises. Yeah. Uh, what happened? And there is a theme to this that has been consistent in all of your fiction, as well as your lectures and your writings on real world crises, which is that people are becoming so dependent on technology and so lulled into this false sense of security that we're losing our resilience and our ability to survive on our own. Why is that yeah. something that you keep coming back to? Oh, I mean, I'm always I'm always obsessed with what can go wrong because I see times I've lived too long. I'm only 48, but in my short life, I've seen so many crises kill so many people mm -hmm. that were so preventable. You know, there, there are times when a crisis comes and you're just not ready and you don't know what you're doing. And it is a failure of imagination. Mm -hmm. You know, 9-11, that hadn't happened before. And, and I can excuse the folks in charge thinking, well, that would never happen because that's mm -hmm. human psychology. But look right now. We've 131,000 Americans dead of COVID-19. So preventable, yeah. easily preventable. Uh, why don't we do it? And so I'm always obsessed with that. And I love to, well, I don't love, I fear when I study crisis. And I always want to try to teach crisis prevention. Mm -hmm. But if you do it in a lecture, if you do like a TED Talk and you wag your finger, uh, you're either going to bore people to death uh, put them to sleep, scare them away, or piss them off. <laughs> but if you just tell a great story and you bring people on a ride, and if you infuse that story with actual facts, maybe some people will learn something. Yeah, so much of your work involves envisioning global crises and taking them to their direst imaginable outcome. It must be a hell of a thing to constantly be thinking about the worst possible scenario. Do you consider yourself an anxious guy or a worrier? No, I'm the reverse. Really? This goes back to the question about what I learned from my parents. Research calms me down mm -hmm. because then I know what I'm dealing with. You know, if, if, I'm, if I'm presented with a crisis, but I don't know anything about the crisis, that's where anxiety comes from. Yeah. I mean, look, look at how much anxiety is gripping us right now about COVID-19 because it's constantly coming up. People saying, well, we just don't know. We don't really know the transmission rate yet. We really don't know the death rate yet. We really don't know the long-term side effects yet. Uh, you know, a lot of people with SARS came out of it with horrible lung damage, permanent lung damage. Yeah. Is that the case here? We just don't know. But with me, when I understand something, I calm down. And that goes back to my mother. When I was a kid, I was about 22 years old, just out of college. My first job was an unpaid internship with the BBC documentary films, a production assistant, Grunt. And one of our shoots was in East Africa. 
Now, this was the East Africa of the Ebola crisis, the Rwanda genocide, and the Somali disintegration. So, hey, mom, I'm going to Africa. (laughs) Now, in order for my mother to calm down, she became an Africa geography expert. She got herself an atlas, and every day she would look at the LA Times about what was happening in Africa, and she would match it with the map, with the postcard she was getting from me. And so that way, if I said, mom, I'm in the Ruinsori Mountains, she would say, okay, here's the Ruinsori Mountains, here's Rwanda, here's Somalia, here's Zaire. He's safe. And that calmed her down. Yeah, I can totally relate to that because I'll tell you, you know, I've, I've always been a guy who makes fun of doomsday preppers, but my wife, she made fun of me because when the pandemic first began, I was the guy who stocked up on canned goods and wanted to have a means of personal protection for my family because who knows how it might play out, you know? I turned into a little bit of doomsday prepper myself, but even if worse doesn't come to worst, there's a certain amount of confidence and peace of mind that just comes with being prepared and being ready for what could possibly happen. And I I felt much better after it. I I agree. And you know what we call doomsday prepping, our grandparents or great grandparents used to just call hard times. Mm -hmm. And that's totally true. Yeah. Yeah. The great, the greatest generation, you know, my grand, well, those are my parents, but my grandmother, you know, she used to put water in the grape juice to make it last and wash out Uh, the plastic bags and yell at you if you went outside with wet hair on a cold day. (laughs) They just knew there were good times. There were hard times. Mm -hmm. And if you just put a little bit away during the good times, you could get through the hard times. So you don't need to be some whack job living in a a buried school bus in the middle of the desert. Uh, You just prepare. Yeah, that's so true. My, My grandparents were exactly the same way always saved up, didn't, uh, you know, put their money in stocks or anything. I mean, they were traumatized by all that and the Great Depression. And, and there's a great quote in the book, when someone in Greenloop warns another character, injury turns you from a giver to a taker. What a great lesson for this moment that we're in. I mean, don't you wish that all of these people who are being so reckless and cavalier about the <clears throat> coronavirus would take that to heart? Oh, God. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, my attitude about about people who don't wear masks and things like that. And this was the point of my PSA was Mm -hmm. you can infect someone else. It's not just about you. If if it's just about you getting infected, go for broke, dude. Have fun. Right. Uh, But FYI, if you get infected, I don't want to have to pay for your medical care. Mm -hmm. And I sure as hell don't believe that you have the right to take up bed space in a hospital, you know, for someone who's been injured or a pregnant woman. You want to get infected, that's fine, but you go to the back of the line. <laughs> and I, I'm going to get pretty radical here, but I believe that if you willingly put yourself in a position where you get infected and then you infect someone else who then infects someone else who then dies, that's manslaughter. Definitely. You know, yeah, you, you know, that's why drinking and driving is illegal. You don't intend to kill someone when you get into your car drunk. But if you kill someone, you go into jail. Right. So you go to a bar without a mask and you get infected and then you breathe on someone who then breathes on, uh, you know, someone who then dies. Mm-hmm. That's on you, dude. The closest analogy I've found is smoking in public places. I mean, we've banned yeah. smoking in restaurants and bars and stores and offices now because your actions affect everyone else around you. But... Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, that is that is why, at least in California, if you fire a gun and it goes through your wall and kills your neighbor, you're responsible for everywhere that bullet goes. Now, now you've spent a lot of mental energy 
gaming out how America might deal with a pandemic like coronavirus. If you had been president or, or let's say you had been dictator with, you know, all the power in the world, don't have to consult Congress. And, and of course, this president thinks that's what it is. But right. if you had that power, what steps would you have wanted to take and when to stop COVID in its tracks or at least mitigate the damage? Uh, well, you know, the sad thing is you wouldn't even have to be a dictator. You just have to be a good president. Yeah. <laughs> All I would have had to do is is follow the plans as outlined in the national response framework, because we have yeah. that. Really? You know, my, I'm part of these two think tanks, the Brent Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security and the Modern War Institute at West Point. And I have seen that we have master disaster plans, mm -hmm. literally, for this. So if I'd been president, I would have said, well, we follow uh, the NRF. But let's say let's say it's uh, January and, and we see what's happening in China. Mm -hmm. We say, OK, we put massive amounts into testing. We ramp up the Defense Production Act so I can we can coordinate the private sector to make things like masks, PPEs, you know, PPE testing, contact tracing. I would appoint just like we did with AIDS, one messenger. So it would be Fauci, the way C. Everett Coop was with AIDS. Mm -hmm. And we prep the country for the lockdown that is coming. So we preposition supplies. We preposition experts. We're ready to contact trace. So that way, when it does come, we can lock the country down for three weeks from Nome, Alaska to Key West. And we just say, nobody leave their home because we're not going to give the fire of this virus any oxygen. Mm -hmm. And in three weeks, we would have been done. Wow. And yet no one would get on board with that because they hadn't had an inkling of how bad it would get. And, and even if it works, then it works and everyone, you know, people just say, well, you know, it was all for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Where's the well, coronavirus? Right. <laughs> because, you know, yeah. in any disaster scenario, you have to have the courage to look foolish and panicky. Yeah. You have to be the one to stand up and say, yes, it looks like we overreacted but you're all alive, which yeah. means we did our job. Absolutely. You and have to be able to take that hit because if you yeah. don't, if you say, well, let's just wait or, or this whack-a-mole state by state, county by county, uh, that's yeah. ridiculous. That would be like if Japan attacked us in 1941 and saying, well, Hawaii will handle that. <laughs> yeah. And as bad as it's been, I'm curious, you know, our supply chains have held, civilized society hasn't deteriorated, policemen, firemen, doctors, trash collectors didn't just quit their jobs or call in sick. We aren't in the streets shooting each other over <laughs> toilet paper. Have you been at all encouraged or impressed by the fact that America, and in fact, most of the world, hasn't devolved into chaos? You know, in a strange way, maybe a little bit more of chaos had kicked us in the ass because this, <laughs> this virus is kind of the perfect biological weapon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because... It has built into itself the ability to lull us into a false sense of security. That's why I write about wow. slow zombies and not fast zombies. <laughs> you know, fast zombies are so scary, they trigger a response. Fast zombies are like Ebola. Because when Ebola happened, people went, oh, shit. <laughs> and we responded. Right. But this one, we went, oh, come on. It's like the <laughs> flu. Don't worry about it. Well, before we go, I read that Legendary Entertainment just picked up your book, Devolution, uh, for, I guess, film or television. What, what are you thinking? Film, TV? What are you? What are you and, and I guess it started that way, right? You've kind of come yeah. full circle because it was originally developed as a project for them before you did the book. It was. I sold them the idea. They put on a, a writer and a director. It didn't go anywhere. 
but it also didn't go in the direction I would have wanted it to. So when it collapsed, I asked Thomas Tall of Legendary, could I have the novel rights back? And he said, sure. Now they want to do it again. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know which direction we're going in. Mm -hmm. Movie, TV, uh, we're at the very early stages, but I can tell you there is a, a huge renewed interest to get this on some kind of a screen. Yeah, that's uh, that would be great. It, it, it seems perfectly made for something like that. And, you know, the, the development process is a hell of a thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we should. You know, this is when people were asking about World War Z. Oh, it's taking so long. And I'm like, guys, you don't remember because most of the, the fans were too young to remember mm -hmm. the 1986 I Am Legend with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. That's how long it took to get it to Will Smith's I Am Legend. Oh, man. Well, Max Brooks's book is called Devolution, a firsthand account of the Rainier Sasquatch Massacre. Go get it and read it. It's fun read, and you might even learn something. I, I think I learned how to make a spear. So, again, please give our love and best wishes to your dad, Mel. And, Max, thanks again for talking with me. It was fun. Thank you. Good to be here again. You take care, man. Thanks again to Max Brooks for coming on the show. Once more, you can order Devolution, a first-hand account of the Rainier Sasquatch Massacre, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. Keep up with Max at maxbrooks.com and follow him on Twitter at at maxbrooksauthor. Meet V-Thrive, the vitamin shop brand. These high-potency vitamins, supplements, and more are simply clean. That means no magnesium stearate, stearic acid, or titanium dioxide, and zero artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. Try their selection of heart-healthy full-spectrum fish oils made from wild-caught, fresh, U.S.-sourced Alaskan pollock. Find these and more at vitaminshop.com forward slash podcast or visit the Vitamin Shop store near you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. For more fun stuff, visit KickAssNews.com and I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News.